Tony is the author of, I think, some 35 books. Uh, he's an emeritus professor of sociology at Eastern University. Uh, he has been a chaplain to presidents. He has been a uh, chaplain to humble people. He has been a friend and an inspirer of a generation of servants of Jesus and leaders. Um, and uh, it is our great pleasure to have Tony come and speak to us tonight. So thank you for coming. I get up to speak, I get nervous. And she said, every time you get up to speak, God gets nervous. <laughs> and uh, nothing could be more true than that statement in light of where I will be going the next two or three days. The way in which I will be speaking, the things I will be saying. Having come so far to be with you, and knowing my age, I figure I won't be back here again. So I'll be out of here shortly. I can say what I really think, <laughs> and you won't be able to get me. <laughs> this sounds so simple. They asked Jesus, you know, uh, what is the greatest commandment of them all? These scholars tell us that uh, the ancient Jewish scholars, the scribes, the Pharisees, had taken the basic laws of Moses and embroidered them into 816 rules. And they had long arguments and debates over which of these 816 laws were the most important of them all. And Jesus says, this is the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the first and the great commandment. The second is like and done to it. That's an important phrase. In other words, it's the same thing. To love your neighbor as you love yourself. The question of loving one's neighbor. And who is my neighbor? And how do we love? The reality is that the the, the church has not been very good at this. Uh, instead of being the agent of reconciliation, as Sarah was talking about, we have been an agent of division. Uh, we have, in fact, separated people, turned people against one another. What does it mean to be an agent of reconciliation to love one's neighbor? I'm what they would call an evangelical. That's frightening. It's frightening because the word evangelical has accumulated so much negative baggage. Surveys being done in the United States of how people in the general public react to the word evangelical are astounding. I mean, uh, if I go to speak at Harvard or Stanford or MIT or any of the great institutions of our country, and I'm introduced as an evangelical, red flags go up. People immediately say, he's an evangelical? Why did we invite him here? An evangelical. What comes to mind when you use the word evangelical are things like this. He's basically negative towards women. He basically has a disparaging attitude towards gay people. Evangelical in the United States is, means to be allied 
with Donald Trump. 81% of white evangelicals in the United States voted for Donald Trump, and that's not the worst part. The more outrageous and unchristian the things that he says gets broadcast far and wide, the greater support he's gaining. Uh, if you think a, the American evangelicals are turning against him, you don't know us very well. They are supporting him, they are cheering him on, and when he runs again, they will vote for him again enthusiastically. Now, there's reasons for that, good reasons. Uh, first of all, he, he was running against somebody who was uh, zealously uh, pro-choice rather than pro-life. And a lot of people voted for him on the basis of saying, wait a minute, I don't like this man, but I don't want somebody in the presidential suite who is going to appoint judges that are going to support abortion. We don't like this man, but he holds the position that we have towards gay people. And so they voted. And I understand that. But the fact that Christians themselves have this image of being anti-women, anti-gay, add to that, anti-environmentalist, add to that, anti-immigrant, add to that, these negative images that we have generated, anti-intellectual, pietistic. The Barna Foundation did a study on evangelicals and their reaction to the general population and find that the general population, when asked, when you think of evangelical, what do you think of? And the answer, overwhelmingly, in an interview after interview was, condemning, judgmental, holier-than-thou, pietistic, horrible, horrible images. It was in this context that some of us got together, about... 30 of us who were evangelical leaders, so to speak, to ask a very simple question. Do we really want to be called evangelicals anymore? Now, if you mean by evangelical, somebody who believes the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the people who wrote the scriptures were imbued, were empowered by the Holy Spirit to write things that were an infallible guide for faith and practice. If that's what you mean, then I say I'm evangelical. If you mean by evangelical as somebody who adopts every one of the doctrines of the Apostles' Creed, I'm an evangelical. I hold to those doctrines. I believe the Bible, I believe the Bible from cover to cover. I even think the leather is genuine. <laughs> I believe the scriptures. I, I believe the doctrines of the Apostles' Creed. And one thing more I will say. Salvation comes not simply by giving assent to doctrinal statements and to creeds. But salvation comes by having a personal transformative relationship with the resurrected Jesus. That Jesus not only is a historical figure who did something wonderful on the cross 2,000 years ago and was resurrected, but that Jesus is alive here and now. 
And you become a Christian not simply by saying yes to the Apostles' Creed. You become a Christian by inviting him to invade your life in a mystical sense and begin transforming you from within. Is Christ at work in your life? Is Christ a living presence within you, changing you, transforming you? If that's what you mean by evangelical, I don't mind using the word. However, that's not what the word means in the general populace anymore. It carries all that ugly baggage that I just described. And so we said, can we come up with a new name? In the group was Jim Wallace of Sojourners Magazine. His assistant said, Jim, you were being interviewed in Nashville, Tennessee by a secular Jewish country and Western disc jockey <laughs> who began saying about you and about your friend Tony Campolo and your friend Ron Sider that, uh, hey, you guys, you're into those red letters of the Bible, aren't you? That's an interesting phrase, the red letters of the Bible. And we picked that up and said, that's good. Why don't we call ourselves red letter Christians? Red letter Christians, you know that many of the Bibles, especially some of the older Bibles, had all the words of Jesus highlighted in red. The interesting thing is that the church has not taken the red letters of the Bible very seriously. That's a strong statement. Uh, what we have done over the last 150 years is taken the doctrines of the Apostles' Creed very seriously. We have taken more important the theology of the Apostle Paul as given in the epistles very seriously. Oh, we, we have had Bible studies, but the Bible studies tend to be in Ephesians and Philippians and Corinthians. We tend to focus on the theology of Paul. Please do not get me wrong. Having a sound, biblically-based theology has ultimate significance and importance. I don't want to minimize that one bit. But hear me, people. It's one thing to affirm the sound theology of the Apostle Paul and at the same time ignore the radical lifestyle prescribed by Jesus. Please note, we are into theology. We like to talk theology. But we don't like to talk about the lifestyle Jesus prescribed. We don't preach it. You say, oh, yes, we do. Do we? We have a discipleship course. And we do all kinds of things in those disciple courses, except tell the people what Jesus said a disciple is. If any man would be my disciple, he says, let him deny himself. This is not easy. Sell whatsoever he has. Give the money to the poor and take up the cross and follow me. Man, I don't hear that. Especially in evangelical churches, the most I hear is to tithe. Why don't we change the hymn book and start singing it? One-tenth to Jesus I surrender. One-tenth to him I gladly give. All together on the chorus. I surrender one-tenth. I surrender one-tenth. One-tenth to Jesus. You've got to be kidding. You know, I mean, we, we talk about surrendering, but we don't surrender. Is the church willing to preach the radical lifestyle that Jesus prescribed? Some of the red-letter Christians who are part of this movement now 
have adopted this radical lifestyle. They live among the poor. They give what they have to the poor. They live simply that others might simply live. They are surrendered. When people ask me, are you a Christian? My answer is, if you mean by that, am I saved? Have I received the gift of salvation as Sarah was speaking about salvation? My answer is yes. My salvation is dependent on what Jesus did for me. The death and the resurrection of Christ have ensured me of my salvation. Not my good works. Not my good works. A friend of mine was at a conference of junior high kids. And they were talking about the grace of God. And if anybody could define it. And uh, they had talked that, that conference about God's justice and God's mercy and God's grace. And one kid said, I've got it. If you're speeding down the highway, going 75 miles an hour in a 55 mile an hour zone, and a police car pulls up behind you with the red lights flashing and waves you to the side of the road, and the cop comes on the side of your car and you roll down the window, and he gives you a ticket, a summons, because you had broken the law, you would have to say, well, that's justice. If he just gives you a warning... That's mercy. But if he comes alongside of the car and gives you a Krispy Kreme donut, that's grace. <laughs> Unexpected. Undeserved. I mean, the last thing in the world you expected was this gift. That's grace. Bono, the lead singer of U2, says it well. Every religion of the world, he said on television, in one form or another, teaches karma. You probably heard that term. It's very prominent in Hinduism. In the next life, you suffer for the sins you committed in this life. Karma. Every religion, in one way or another, teaches karma. And then he smiled and said to the camera, except for this, Jesus is the only one who offers grace. Grace. You don't get what you deserve. That's the good news of the gospel. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's not loving God for this great gift, but allowing Christ to come in and make you into somebody who can love others, to love your brother, your sister, your friends, your neighbors, to love those around you, to love, to love. Of course, we've got a big problem in the United States in getting white people to love black people. You say, well, there you go, you Americans. You folks over here on this side of the ditch, as you call it, aren't any different. You've got this aboriginal issue. Let's be honest. Your record is just as bad as ours, maybe worse. Racism. What does it mean to love your aboriginal brother and sister? On my side of the ditch, what does it mean to love the black man, the, his wife, his children? What does it mean to overcome the racial barrier? A friend of mine now deceased, his name was Clarence Jordan, very powerful spokesperson for racial justice, described going in 1954, that's 
date is important. To speak in evangelistic service, to do a week of evangelistic ministries in this very racist town in South Carolina, which in itself is a very racist state within the United States. He got up to speak. He looked at the congregation. He was incredulous. It was a mixed congregation, black people, white people, sitting side by side, singing together, worshiping together, having this wonderful time together. At the end of the service, he asked the old hillbilly preacher, because it was a hillbilly situation, he said to this uneducated, hillbilly, unsophisticated preacher, how'd you get like this? And this old guy said, like what? Integrated. You got black people and white people loving each other. How did this happen? Has this come about since the decision? Of course, you wouldn't know what he was referring to, but in 1954, there was a decision by the Supreme Court in the United States that black schools and white schools could no longer be segregated. They had to be integrated. Has this come about since the, since the decision? Oh, hillbilly preacher said, what, what decision? He said, the Supreme Court decision of 54. Oh, he says, what's that got to do with Christians? Christians shouldn't have to be told by the state how they should love and accept one another. Clarence said, now you know you've got an unusual church here. How did this happen? He said, well, we had about 30 people in the church, and, and the preacher died, and we couldn't get a new preacher know-how. So finally, I, I went to the deacons, and they said, listen, if nobody else will preach, I'll preach. So they let me preach. And the first Sunday I got up, I, I opened the Bible, put my finger down, and it landed on a verse in Galatians. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, Scythian nor barbarian, male nor female, but all become one in Christ Jesus. And I preached about how the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, transforms us into people who suddenly feel a oneness with people from who we had previously been alienated. He said, I talked about the oneness in Christ Jesus. When the service was over, the deacons called me into the back room of the church and they wanted to talk to me and they told me they didn't want to hear that kind of preaching anymore. And Clarence looked at this old hillbilly preacher and said, well, what did you do? He said, I fired them deacons. <laughs> well, if the deacon's not going to deke, you might as well fire him. He said, how come they didn't fire you? He said, they never hired me. There's something to be said for a non-paid clergy. I'm not suggesting anything. I'm just saying if your livelihood is not dependent on the congregation, you're able to say things. That's why I'm able to say things here tonight with which there might be a good bit of disagreement as this progresses. And he said, once I, once I realized what bothered them, I gave it to them every Sunday in one form or another. He said that the people put up with it. He said, I preached that church down to four. <laughs> you know, we, we think that revival begins when you get a lot of new people into the church. Sometimes revival begins when you get a lot of the old people out of the church. There are a lot of people who prevent revival, and they got to they gotta be removed. 
because they're barriers to the Holy Spirit. It says in one place in Scripture, Jesus goes to his hometown and he can do no mighty works there because of their unbelief. Barriers to the work of God. He said, once I found out, I gave it to him every Sunday and the congregation got smaller and smaller. And then we wouldn't bring anybody into the church unless they were truly converted. He said, how do you know when people are truly converted? He said, down here in South Carolina. You're raised to be racist. You're raised to look upon people who are African-American with very jaundiced eyes. But when the Holy Spirit enters into you, you end up loving people that the society has socialized you to hate. And when we found that people believe that, the work of God is the overcoming of the racial barrier, we brought them into the church. The church was filled with about 600 people squeezed together. It was amazing. This great gathering of people, black and white, together. When the service was over, Clarence said, I got into a car uh, to be driven to the airport. The man that was driving me to the airport lived 70 miles away. And he came every Sunday to that church to worship. And Clarence looked at this young man who was a PhD in English literature, teaching on the faculty at the University of South Carolina. And he said, you're a man of high educational status with sophisticated language. Why do you go to that church? That old hillbilly can't, can't utter a sentence without making a grammatical error. Why, why do you go there? And this young, sophisticated member of the intelligentsia looked with disdain, said Clarence, looked at me with disdain and said, Sir, I go to that church because that man preaches the gospel, the whole gospel. And the whole gospel is this. It's part of the gospel is getting reconciled to God. But as Jesus says, it also involves being reconciled with your brother, with your sister, with your neighbor, with those who are different than you are. Reconciliation. The Pentecostal movement is the most dynamic movement in Christendom today. Don't get me wrong, I'm not Pentecostal. I don't speak in tongues. I don't even kiss in tongues, so I'm, I'm secure. <laughs> However, one cannot at this particular stage in history be anything but awed by the Pentecostal movement. Started in 1906 in a little church in Azusa, California. It was a closed-up Methodist church, and they opened it up, and this black man, Reverend Seymour, preached a sermon on the Holy Spirit, and the movement began. It began drawing people in larger numbers each night as it went on night after night after night. It became a sensation. The Los Angeles Times reported on this every night sending a reporter to this phenomenal thing. Interestingly enough, if you read Harvey's book, Harvey Cox's book, Fire from Heaven, it's this Harvard sociologist analyzing the whole movement, that nobody was even paying any attention to the tongues thing. It was quite incidental. What amazed them, the reporters, was the way black people and Asian people and white people 
were hugging each other and loving each other in a, at a time when racial tensions in Southern California were at a high point, maybe the worst point in history. And here they were in the midst of this racist society, overcoming racism. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit makes people one. On the day of Pentecost, people from diverse places, diverse nations, diverse tongues came together and suddenly there was a oneness. There was a unity. And the Los Angeles Times said the evidence that the Holy Spirit was doing something special, and they didn't even mention the tongue sling. Read the articles. They talked about the unity, the way in which barriers, racial barriers had been overcome. Then there's another one. And you say, well, hey, men, thank God for that. We, we need to get some of that here in, uh, in Australia. They'll overcome the racial barriers, yes. Uh, Howard Thurman, uh, the one-time theologian in, uh, at Rankin, Coward, uh, Rank, Rankin Chapel in uh, Washington, D.C., and professor and dean of uh, Howard University in Washington, D.C., contended it is only the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that enable us to overcome racism. Let me repeat that. It's not a matter of education. It's more than that. It's not simply a matter of getting to know people of another race. It's more than that. It takes a miracle because racism is so entrenched in our psyche, so much a part of our cultural indoctrination, that to find it weeded out and destroyed requires more than just education and better association. It requires Howard Thurman, the great theologian in America for the African-American community, it requires a miracle. And the good news is, there is a miracle. In the power of the Holy Spirit, racism can be overcome. You say, has it been overcome in your life? The rudiments of racism are always there. Now, I happen to belong to an African-American church. Don't get all excited and say, oh, here's a man who's socially relevant. No, I belong to a white church called the New Berean Baptist Church that went out of business. And the nearest Baptist church was Mount Carmel Baptist Church, which happened to be black. And that's where I ended up, because I'm Baptist. <laughs> hey, you don't have to be Baptist to go to heaven. Amen? <laughs> but why take a chance? That's what I'd like to know. <laughs> the preacher's preaching away. He says, everybody here a Baptist? One guy says, no, I'm, I'm Church of Christ. He says, why? My mother was Church of Christ. My father was Church of Christ. They raised me in the Church of Christ. He said, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. You ought to be a Baptist. If your mother was an ignoramus and your father was an ignoramus, would you be an ignoramus? He said, no, I'd probably be a Baptist. <laughs> the reality is that denominational differences shouldn't exist. I mean, the Church of Christ was founded in the Camelot movement. All about trying to do what? Overcome denominational differences. Allowing uh, minor issues uh, to splinter and destroy the church of Christ. To get people to be angry with each other over things that in the long run are of little consequence. The churches of Christ were founded by somebody who said denominational differences shouldn't be. And it was crowned in saying, aren't we all part of the church of Jesus Christ? What a great theme. What a great truth. What a great reality. 
overcoming racial problems. But there's another one. Here's the one that's splitting the church right down the middle. The racial issue split the church in the United States right down the middle. That's how we got Southern Baptist, American Baptist, every major denomination in America split right down the middle in the 1800s over this slavery issue. You may know that. We had all of these divisions over slavery. And may I say, people on both sides use the Bible to support their case. For slavery, use the Bible to oppose slavery. And they split. Churches split all over the place. Today, churches are splitting all over the place. But it's not over the race issue anymore. It's over the gay issue. There isn't a church I know of that isn't fighting over this issue. In the United States, every denomination is splitting down the middle. You say, well, the Bible speaks to this issue. It does. But maybe it doesn't say what you think it says. Let me tell you this. I know of a university chaplain. And a student came into the office weeping, just convulsed in tears. Said to the chaplain, I've been outed. The word is around the campus that I'm a lesbian. My father is the pastor of the largest church in this neighborhood. 300 plus of the students go there on Sunday. My, my father preaches against homosexuals day in and day out. And when he finds out that I am one of them, he'll reject me. And I feel I need to tell him before somebody else does. The chaplain, I know, said, well, you don't have to tell him because I'm going to tell him. Sit right there. Don't get up. Picked up the phone, dialed the father on the telephone, said, your daughter is here in the office. She's been conducting Bible studies on campus, and the word that I get back is that they're the best Bible studies on the campus. She's the worship leader when we hold chapel, and she's really good at it. As a matter of fact, if you're talking about a solid Christian witness on this campus, your daughter shines bright. The father immediately chimed in with saying, oh, that's my daughter. When she's home during the summer months, the youth work expands exponentially. More and more people come to the worship service. It's quite wonderful. And, and she visits the sick, and she's, she's out there all the time ministering to people. It, some people think she's a saint. And at this point, this young chaplain said, okay, you can stop right there. We are agreed. Your daughter is a wonderful Christian woman. And in the next 30 seconds, I'm going to find out whether you are worthy to be called her father. Whoa. Whoa. That's putting the knife in, isn't it? People are abominations to God. It says so in the 11th chapter of Leviticus, doesn't it? Yes, it comes five verses after the verse that says, to touch the skin of a dead pig is an abomination to God, which puts the whole Super Bowl into serious question. <laughs> I'm so glad that the Eagles finally won the Super Bowl because for years they couldn't win because their players were too spiritual. 
And when the football would be thrown in their direction, the wide receivers would never catch them. I watched on television go right through their hands time and time again because there were godly people who would not touch the skin of a dead pig. And so we have this problem in the church. Let me say this as a sociologist. First, nobody knows what causes a homosexual orientation. When somebody says, I know what makes people homosexual, I've heard on Christian radio, I know what does it. If you have an overbearing woman in the home, if the mother is a strong personality and the father is a weak personality, or if the father is absent from the home, the male will identify with the mother and become homosexual. That is about the dumbest thing I ever heard. First of all, there's no empirical evidence to support that theory. And secondly, it's evil, especially when it comes from the church, and it comes from the church in an evil manner for this reason. It puts parents on a guilt trip. My kid's a gay kid. He's going to suffer, and it's my fault. If I had been the father that I should have been, if she was the mother she should have been, it would have never happened. Don't go on a guilt trip. I don't know what causes a homosexual orientation. There isn't a social scientist I know who can speak in a definitive manner on that question. There are some people who say it's inborn, it's genetic. No evidence. There's no evidence to support any theory as to what causes a homosexual orientation. This we do know. Whatever forms a homosexual mindset occurs so early in the physical, psychological, social development of the child that the child never makes a decision about it. I often ask my heterosexual friends, when, when did you choose to be heterosexual? Nobody chooses this. As a matter of fact, why would anybody choose to be homosexual knowing what a homosexual has to go through, the suffering that a homosexual has to endure? First, nobody knows what causes it. Secondly, the evidence is overwhelmingly clear that with the male population, note I said male, I don't have enough data on females. On the male population, the possibility of changing a sexual orientation is next to nil. I never say never because with God anything is possible. I am just saying that if I look at a homosexual male, the probability if this person prays and gets hands laid on them, I don't care what you do, get counseling, it's not going to change. Now, if you can give me evidence of the contrary, I'm a social scientist, I'm ready to listen because we can become famous if you can prove otherwise that people change it. They don't change. And the question now comes back to the church. Are you going to call these gay people in your congregation and please don't give me this stuff? They're not in my congregation. Bill Gaither told me if we got rid of all the homosexuals in the church, half of our music programs would close down. <laughs> and we all know that to be true, don't we? There's this don't ask, don't tell mentality that exists in the church. And we let these people continue to exist without ever talking about it. The major cause of suicide in the United States and incidentally, suicide is the second major cause of death. Among teenagers, second major cause of death. 
the major reason for suicide, as the studies will indicate, is that people cannot accept their sexual orientation. They become incredibly depressed. And the church drives them into depression. I told you you will have a chance at the end to ask questions and to challenge anything that I've said. I'm not here above contradiction. Whenever I put out a statement on something like this, I always begin by saying, I could be wrong. There's not enough of that in the church. We all act as though my way is Yahweh. When I speak, I, it's not just the Pope that is, speaks ex cathedra and is above error. We act that way as Christians so often. Truth is, I could be wrong. I'm just a sociologist by trade, and we've gathered enough evidence to support the case that people don't change. What is the church going to do about it? Because we're driving kids to suicide. I could give you the evidence that the church is driving kids to suicide. A kid grows up in the church. He becomes a leader in the youth group. Everybody thinks he's wonderful. And then one day he comes to the awareness of his sexual identity. And he begins to hate himself. And he tries to change. And he goes to counseling. And he does everything that they ask him to do. And nothing changes. He walks the floor at night crying and screaming to the Lord to deliver him. And nothing happens. Are you willing to call him my brother? Are you willing to love him as Jesus calls us to love the neighbor? As you Well, what does Jesus say about gays? That's a good question. What does he say about gays? Nothing. His primary condemnation is not on gays. It's on religious people who go around judging and condemning others. Amen to that? So be careful who you condemn. For with what judgment you judge, ye shall be judged. And then there's Muslims. This country is having to deal with Muslims for the first time. When I was growing up, I never knew a Muslim. Now in the great city of Philadelphia, you can't walk down the street without seeing women who are obviously Muslim by their dress, by their head coverings. They're all over the place. And since 9-11, since the attack on the World Trade Buildings, Islamic phobia has become increasingly evident. And the church calls upon us to pass judgment on them. I think they're wrong in their theology. But I have to love them as brothers and sisters. I have to love them. I have a friend pastored a church in Manhattan. Every morning he would go to this coffee shop to get donuts and coffee before he started his day. He did that every day for about a month and a half, and then one day he stood up and he said, could I have your attention, everybody? <coughs> everybody looked at this weirdo who at 6.30 in the morning is calling for people to pay attention. He says, I've been coming in here every morning for the last month and a half, it's the same people every morning. I don't know anybody's name. I don't know anything about any of you. Would you please introduce yourself? He said, my name's Gordon. I pastor the Baptist church up the street. Would you introduce yourself and give us your name? Amazingly, the people did, one after the other. It turned out that Tom Wolfe, the author, was there. Three television personalities came there. All these 
And they got to know each other. After that, it was a friendly place. They'd come in and say, hey, Gordon, how's it going to church on Sunday? Hey, how's that new movie you're doing? And they began talking to each other and being friends. They knew about everybody except the guy who ran the place. Finally, they said, Harry, we don't know anything about you. You haven't said a word. Do you have a family? Where do you, your family live? Like, tell us about yourself. He didn't want to answer. But you know how a gang can gang up on somebody. And they ganged up on him. Wouldn't let him off the hook. Finally, he said, all right. If you have to know, my name is not Harry. It's Hasim. And secondly, I do have a family. And they're in Baghdad right now. And then looking over the group, he said, and your country is preparing to bomb Baghdad, even as we speak. And that's where my family is. Dead silence fell over the group. Dead silence. People hunkered down, they drank their coffee, they ate their donuts, and they got out of there. Whoa. The next morning, the phone rang at 5.30. Gordon was still shaving. He answered the phone, and the voice at the other end said, Gordon, they started the bombing. They're bombing Baghdad. They're bombing Baghdad. Gordon didn't even wait for the conversation to continue. He hung up the phone and wiped the soap off of his face, got in his clothes as quickly as he could, rushed down uh, to the coffee shop. He wanted to be there before Hasim showed up. He said, when I rushed, turned the corner and rushed towards the store, to the coffee shop, to my amazement, every single person who had coffee in that place had already arrived. They were all thinking the same thoughts that I had. They wanted to be there to comfort Hasim. They said, Hasim got out of his car. He started to the coffee shop and he spotted us. And he just stood there, stunned. We all ran up, he said, and circled him, trying to give him comfort. And finally, Tom Wolfe said, all right, Gordon. You're the preacher. Pray. So he said, there I am on the, cons on the sidewalk, praying for a Muslim, surrounded by agnostics, atheists, a few Jews, but not another Christian. And we prayed for Asim and for his family. When I finished the prayer and said amen, Hasim looked up, looked at each of us, and he said, all right, all right, but you still have to pay for the donuts. <laughs> and then he quickly added, but from now on, my friends, and you are my friends, from now on, the coffee here for you will always be free. Gordon said, as I sat at the counter drinking my coffee and eating my donut, I wondered if I had ever eaten the bread and drank the wine at a communion service with such an awareness of the presence of the Spirit of God. God was there. God was there. Doing what Sarah called reconciliation. Overcoming the barriers that exist between us. 
How does this happen? I mentioned the Pentecostal movement being very effective. As a matter of fact, sociologists will point out that the only churches in America that you can count on being racially integrated are the Pentecostal churches. I don't know how it is here in Australia, but if you go to a Pentecostal church, all kinds of races are in there, and they seem to be at one with each other. Now, I told you that I, I, I tried. I, I went to a Pentecostal service one night, and they called us all up front, and they lined us. Have you ever seen this? And the preacher went down hitting people on the head. You've seen that? Everybody he hit fell over. Boom, boom, boom. Everybody he hit on the head fell over, except me. <laughs> he hit me on the head, and nothing happened. He moved on and knocked over some other people. Then he came back and he hit me again. I went home disappointed because I sensed that there was something called the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and I wanted to experience that. Eventually, I did come into a special relationship with the Holy Spirit, and it was incredibly a Catholic guy that got me into it. He gave me a Catholic book called The Spiritual Exercises by St. Ignatius, which dealt with different new ways of praying like I've never prayed before. I grew up Baptist, I told you. I didn't know how to pray any way except as Baptists pray. You know how we pray. We read off a list of non-negotiable demands to the Almighty. <laughs> I mean, you, you go to a Baptist church, you'll hear the prayer, they tell God a lot of stuff God already knows. Dear Lord, Sister Mary is sick in the hospital. What do you think God's saying? Whoa. I didn't know that. What's hospital? The Bible's pretty clear. God knows what we need when, before we even ask. I still make my request known to God, but it's not to inform God. It's to establish dependency on God, to recognize that he is the source of all the blessings. But I learned new ways of praying. Actually, myself and a Somebody who had been trained by the Jesuits put the book together called The God of Intimacy in Action, which is about new ways of praying that I had never known before. I'll just give you one, the prayer of examine. When you pray at the end of the day, you should examine what you did the past day. Two ways. I always only did it one way. As a matter of fact, when I go to church, I get depressed when I hear prayers. Father, forgive us of all the things that we have done that we ought not to have done. <coughs> ought not to have done. And then on top of that, and forgive us for all the things we should have done and failed to do. Jeez, no wonder you got guilt-ridden people in church. You say, shouldn't we confess our sins to the Lord? Of course. But before we name all the sins, we'd better do something else. Here's what Ignatius says. You start your prayer by naming all the wonderful things for God that you did that day, all the ways in which you blessed people, testified, all the ways in which you gave to people who were in need. Name them. You say, well, I, that's positive thinking, but I don't know if it's biblical. Of course it's biblical. It says in the book of Ephesians what? And finally, my brothers and sisters, and if you read it in the original language, it says, at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, whatsoever things you have done that were good, whatsoever things you have done which were blessed, 
whatsoever things you said that were of good report, whatsoever things you said and did that were compassionate, here's what it says, think on these things. Only after you have affirmed the positive side are you ready to deal with the downside. In raising a kid, if you're going to correct the kid and point out his failures or her failures, do it in the context of affirmation. Tell the kid how wonderful he is before you tell him or are all the rotten things that he's done. You don't dump the negative until you first provide the positive. So why do you do to yourself what you know you should never do it to a child? So there's two parts, and I do that now. I go through the prayer of examine. I examine the good, and I feel pretty good when I do that part. And then I'm ready to look at the dark side. There are other, another way of praying is praying, and this is really big with me, is contemplative praying. I wake up in the morning, and it takes me about 15 to 20 minutes to drive everything superfluous out of my mind. I don't know how you are, but the minute I wake up, my brain is like a beehive, buzz, 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 all over the place. Jeez. I'm thinking of all the things that were troubling me from yesterday, all the things I need to do today. My head is buzzing. It's like a ping pong ball bouncing around. I have to become still. And it takes me about 15 to 20 minutes to become inwardly still, to drive everything else out of my mind, except for one thing, Jesus. I actually say his name over and over again. Jesus, 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 Jesus. You see, why do you do that? Because there's something about that name. It drives back the dark forces. The dark forces. I believe in evil spirits. And at the name of Jesus, they back off. And I'm left with what the ancient Celtic Christians called a thin place. The wall between me and God is so thin that the spirit can come through and envelop me, invade me, and possess me. When a Pentecostal says, when were you filled with the Holy Spirit? I, I usually say, you know, this morning. It's not a one-time thing. It's a daily surrendering to Christ to invade me and to possess me, to come into me. Last thing and then the questions. The great theological discovery of my life about 30 years ago was the awareness that Christ is waiting to be encountered in those who are in need. Jesus says, I was, I was hungry, did you feed me? I was naked, did you clothe me? I was sick, did you care for me? I was a stranger. I was an alien. I was an illegal immigrant. Did you take me in? For whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. The same Jesus that died on Calvary waits to be confronted in that immigrant, in that hungry person, that naked person, that needy person, waiting to be encountered. And Jesus says, if you can't find me here, if you can't relate to me in that person who is in need, 
then you don't know me at all. I'm walking down Chestnut Street in Philadelphia, and this dirty, filthy man, greasy, covered man, beard, filthy man, is walking down the street, and he's one of those uh, psychotics. He's yelling and screaming at somebody who isn't there. You've, you've met people like this on the streets of Melbourne, screaming and yelling, and so, nobody's there. And he spots me, and he says, hey, mister, you want some of my coffee? And I looked at this McDonald's styrofoam cup smudged with the filth of his beer. Want some of my coffee? To tell the truth, I didn't want any of his coffee. <laughs> but I, I knew the right thing to do was to affirm his generosity. So I took the cup and I took a sip and I gave it back to him. I said, well, that was pretty generous, giving away your coffee to people you don't even know? What's gotten into you today, fella? He said, well, the coffee today was especially delicious. And when God gives you something especially wonderful, you ought to share it with people. I thought, oh, no. <laughs> this sucker's going to hit me for money. I know it. <laughs> I said, you want something from me, don't you? He said, yeah. I want a hug. I was hoping for the $10. <laughs> I put my arms around him. He put his arms around me. And suddenly I realized he had me in a bear hug. And he wasn't going to let me go. People are passing on the street. They're staring at me. This upright individual hugging and uh, a dirty, filthy man on the street. And I was embarrassed. And little by little, the embarrassment turned to awe and reverence. And I could hear his voice echoing down the corridors of time saying, I was hungry. Did you feed me? I was naked. Did you clothe me? I was sick. Did you care for me? I was, I was the stranger that came into your country. Did you take me in? I was in prison. Did you visit me? For if you failed to do it to the least of these, you failed to do it to me. And if you did it to the least of these, you failed to do it to me. I got tried for heresy. The fundamentalist said, he's acting as though Christ is waiting to be encountered in every person that you meet. My answer is, you got me right. You say, well, that's universalism. No, it's not. I believe there is a sacred presence in every human being. Not because I said so, but because the Bible says so. Read the first chapter of John where it talks about Christ. And he is the light, I'm quoting scripture, he is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world, every woman that cometh into the world. He's there waiting to be encountered. You become a Christian not because you have Christ in you, but because you surrender to Christ. As a matter of fact, you wouldn't become a Christian if Christ wasn't already in you. I mean, on Judgment Day, you're not going to be able to say, Lord, I considered all the uh, ideological and theological formulations of truth that exist in the marketplace of idea. And after much reflection, I made the existential decision. He's going to say, shut up. <laughs> you didn't choose me. I chose you. And it was my spirit working in you that drove you to believe in me. You say, don't I get credit for anything? No. 
All glory, Lord, and honor belongs to Jesus Christ the King. You say, what about those who don't become Christians? They're resisting. The Spirit of God is operative out there. St. Francis of Assisi, another Catholic, said needy people are sacramental. Now, I'm Baptist. I said that. Disciples of Christ are like us in this respect. When we have Holy Communion, we have the same theology. Catholics believe that the bread becomes the actual flesh of Jesus. The wine becomes the blood of Christ, literally. At the other end of the line are disciples and, and Baptists, and we believe in Holy Communion. The bread stays bread. And the wine is transformed into grape juice. That's, that's our, <laughs> our theology. We have our own version of transubstantiation. In the middle are the Anglicans and the Lutherans. They say it's still bread, it's still wine, but there's a sacred presence that infuses the elements. I don't necessarily agree with them, but I do know this, that there is a sacred presence that invades the person who comes to you in need. And if that person has AIDS, look deeply in the eyes of that person because you're likely to find that Jesus is staring back at you. Christ chooses to present himself to us through those who are in need. He uses people sacramentally. There's a good word, sacramentally. They become instruments through whom we can encounter the living Christ. Therefore, you can't reject people because when you reject them, you're rejecting Jesus. Whether that person's a Muslim, whether that person comes from another race, whether that person has a different sexual orientation. Well, I went on far too long, and I'm sorry about that. I, I left my notes, actually, Craig will tell you, back at the hotel. He said, should I go back and get them? I said, no, I'll, I'll remember and do I did remember, but it took me too long to do all the remembering. <laughs> I would have been much, come tomorrow and I will give you a short talk because I'll have my notes with me tomorrow. But uh, that's it for tonight. And let me just say that concept that Christ is waiting to be encountered in every other person. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second commandment is likened unto it, is the same thing. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. What is he saying? He's saying, you can't love God without loving your neighbor. And you can't love your neighbor without loving God. They are so intimately tied up with each other. On that happy note, it's your turn to challenge the stuff that I've said. You say, I agree with a lot of it, but a lot of it I disagree with. Here's a chance for you to say, you're wrong. I just feel like it would be good if before we got our minds too engaged, if you actually just prayed for us. What's that? If you just prayed for us first. And oh, okay. Be good because I think we just want to process this first and be touched by it before we okay. get too cognitive. Yeah, thanks. Father God, help us to take time to become holy. 
Teach us how to pray in ways that will enable the Holy Spirit to possess us. Transform us from within. I pray that that Holy Spirit will empower us and enable us to find you waiting to be loved in the others that surround us. Regardless of their sexual orientation, their religious commitments, their racial identities, may your spirit within us enable us to brace others. Help us to do what you did 2,000 years ago when you embraced a Samaritan, a Syrian, a Lebanese, when you embraced those that the religion of your day told us to reject. Thank you for what you did and the model you established. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for that. It just helps us, I think, um, have some time with the Lord and process that and, and be touched. I just want to open. We've, we've asked uh, Tony just to be available for a couple of questions. We've kind of set aside around about 15 minutes as a goal, and I think we'll stick to that so we don't get... Uh, too late, um, and um, you don't have to go any shorter tomorrow. Okay, you're welcome to go to go just as long. Uh, so, has someone has anyone got any questions? I will just come to you with the microphone if we can. Um, I said a lot of controversial things. I don't know whether you saw them as controversial, but they were. Well, I'm sure, I'm I'm guessing there'll be a mixture, but let's not. Uh, you're a professor. You're pretty used to yeah, tough, I can tough questions. Yeah. So, anyone got any questions? As yeah. I said, in a couple of days, I'm getting on a plane and flying out of here. <laughs> Just put your hand up so I can bring the microphone to you. Otherwise, we'll go home early. Thank you. Sorry, if you say your first name, so. Uh, g'day, Dr. Campoli. My name's Jay. You may remember me a few years ago. You said I'm cute and should stay away from ladies. Um, I've liked you all the more since then. I was just wondering if you could touch on a little bit more. Here we are perhaps a bit confused about how a man who seems to be so against everything our faith and our saviour stands for could attract um, people, Christians. A man who seems to live a lifestyle so against. Um, a man who's dividing and causing division rather than reconciliation. I'd love to actually understand that a bit more. Well, let me just say the love that evangelicals have for Donald Trump it exists for two reasons, not just one. I, I mentioned one, that his position on abortion, which incidentally is a Johnny-come-lately thing. Uh, he was pro-choice until he decided to run for president, and he knew he couldn't get the evangelical vote unless he was pro-life, so suddenly he changed his position. We could give you all kinds of quotes on his position on that issue prior to his running for the presidency. But it was the pro-life issue that was very, very strong. And that's a key issue. That's a, that's a deal breaker. That's a defining issue for many of us. The problem is that you don't get rid of abortions by making it illegal. The truth is it only drives it underground. We all know that. Before the Supreme Court of the United States made abortions legal, abortions were occurring, if you check the statistics in 1950, at approximately the same rate as they are existing now. It, it doesn't do the trick. 
uh, you, uh, it, it, it won't work that way. So that's one reason. The second reason is that American evangelicals, and this may be true of uh, Aussie evangelicals, are more committed to capitalism than they are to the gospel. You say, what do you mean? Well, let's talk about capitalism in its pure form. If you get any book on economics and read a definition of capitalism, the first thing they'll say is, capitalism is built on the profit motive. It's the desire for profits that drive people in capitalism. Let me say this. It is true for me, profits drive us. However, if you're a real Christian, you are not motivated by the desire to increase profits. You are motivated by love. Love motivates you to meet people's needs. You say, and? And most of what we produce in our economic system meets nobody's needs. If you don't believe me, think of Christmas. You got to buy something for this person who has what? What do you buy for somebody who has everything? Nothing. But you don't have the guts to pull it off. You don't have the guts to come down Christmas morning and say, nobody is getting anything because everybody in this family has everything. No. You will go to the department store, wander up and down the aisle, and because you're Christians, you will pray that somebody, somewhere, invented something that nobody needs so you can give it to the person who has everything. I am not exaggerating. And we do this wasting billions of dollars on what nobody needs while there is desperate need for water and food, as we saw in that video before this thing started. Jeez. All for the maximization of profits. I always tell my students, there's nothing wrong with profits. If you don't make profits, you won't stay in business long enough to meet anybody's needs. So it's not that profits are evil. It's just not your prime motivation. Your prime motivation should be to meet people's needs with love. I had to preach in a huge Baptist church in Durham, North Carolina, which is the center of the cigarette industry. And because I wasn't feeling good, I said something which I knew would destroy my position. I basically said, most of you work in the cigarette industry. How do you get up in the morning and go to work to produce something that gives people cancer, that has no value whatsoever, but is destroying lives? How do you say, I'm doing this for the glory of God? They never invited me back. <laughs> I did get an honorarium, but no note of appreciation from the pastor. Do we spend our lives producing stuff that nobody needs? Do we waste our lives? I can't help but tell you a good story. My friend Fred Craddock says, I had an uncle that loved greyhound dogs. And he would go and race, rescue them from the racetrack. Do they race greyhound dogs here? When they get old, they put them down, so I would rescue them and they make great pets. He said, I went to see my uncle, and there was this, there was this greyhound dog in the middle of the living room floor wrestling with the children. 
They were having a great time laughing and jumping on each other. It was wonderful. He said, I looked down at that greyhound dog and I said, hey, dog, how come you're not racing anymore? Are you too old to race? And the dog said, no, I'm still quite young. He said, you weren't winning, so they didn't race you anymore. Oh, no, he said, I won every race I entered up until I decided to quit. Well, if you're still young and you were winning, why did you quit? And the greyhound dog said, because one day I realized that rabbit I was chasing wasn't real. <laughs> I wonder how many of us in our capitalistic society end up spending our lives chasing rabbits that aren't real. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I think our love for capitalism, for the human, it's no wonder that the uh, prosperity theology has spread across the United States, that the biggest churches are into prosperity theology. May God your choice and you'll drive a Rolls Royce. God, this is the man who said, the foxes have holes, the birds have nests. You follow me, you won't end up with a place to lay your head. That's what Jesus said, isn't it? How can you get a prosperity theology out of that? So I think the American people love Donald Trump because he's making them richer. I was talking to a man the other day who's a solid Christian and that he believes all the right things. And I say, how can you, how can you support a man who's overtly a sexist, who has offended women, who is openly a racist, talking about African nations, quote, I'm quoting him, as garbage nations, we want people who come from places like Norway, not from Africa. This is the president on public television. And evangelicals support him with more enthusiasm than ever before. If you don't believe me, come to the United States and enter into an argument over who's president, and they'll let you know in no uncertain terms. And so we have this problem on our hands that uh, accumulating wealth is more important. And this man said, well, everything you say about Donald Trump is true, but I'm going to vote for him again because every time I open my stock portfolio, I've gotten richer than I was just a month before. My wife and I discovered, much to our surprise, that we had a lot of money. So we started giving it away at big chunks, 50,000 a month. You know what? Trump has got that stock market going up so high and so fast that every time I offer, open the portfolio, I'm just as wealthy as I was the month before, even though I've given away, given away, given away, given away. It's amazing. And, the, and this guy looked at me and said, how am I supposed to vote against that? Seek, don't seek after the things of this world. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Good question. So there's the religious reason, the abortion issue. There's also the socioeconomic issue. America's love for capitalism more than many of us love Jesus.
As a matter of fact, they are quite willing to say, and you'll hear this on Christian television, that capitalism is the system ordained of God. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a socialist. I believe in the free enterprise system. I don't think government should be telling us what we can earn and how much we can earn. And let me say this. There is nothing wrong with earning a million dollars a year. There is something very wrong about keeping it when there's so much need around you. When a few dollars can build a well in Africa that will bring joy and celebration to people like you saw in that little film clip, how dare you keep that money when you could do some... My wife says with, uh, with Dolly and hello, Dolly, she says, money is like manure. If you let it pile up in one place, it stinks. But if you spread it out, it can do a lot of good. <laughs> one more question. I just wanted to ask you, my name's Rob. Uh, Most Christians I know who are opposed to homosexuality are actually very accepting toward gay people, but they have a problem in not uh, believing change can happen, and that's partly because of verses in the Bible, but partly because there are many examples of people who claim to have actually changed. I was just wondering if you got a view on either of those uh, those twin, uh, I guess, parts to that dilemma for many of those people. When I started dealing with the gay issue, please note that I started with an important statement. I could be wrong. I wish people, <coughs> I wish people on the other side would say the same thing. Because if both parties do not admit that they could be wrong. We end up yelling at each other and condemning each other. And that's what I see happening in the church. These heated, condemning arguments over something that Jesus never even mentions. In the book of Matthew, it has Jesus in the red letter saying, woe unto you Pharisees who have great arguments on lesser things and ignore the more important things of God's law. You can go through the verses and say, but this is clear. Well, is it as clear as you think it is? Take the most important one, first chapter of Romans. That's usually where it boils down to in the end, where it says, I'm quoting. They take the image of the incorruptible man and they transform him. In, uh, of the inc- they take the image of the incorruptible God and transform him into an image like an incorruptible man, unto four-footed beasts, birds of the air, animals. Sociologists call this totemism. Totem pole, all these animals, symbolizing the traits of the values of the tribe. And they end up worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And then it says, therefore God gives them up 
so that men have sex with men and women have, you know the passage. Please note that if you follow the logic there, it seems as though homosexuality is caused by idolatry because people are worshiping these totems, these images. They become homosexuals. Read the first chapter of Romans. Is it not about idolatry? And does it not, in fact, say that this idolatry leads to homosexuality? Or maybe we ought to look at it again and ask some questions that they would in a school like Sterling. Questions like this. Where was Paul when he wrote that first chapter of Romans? Do you know where he was? He was in Corinth. Do you know what the religion in Corinth was? It was the worship of a goddess named Aphrodite. And she had a son named Hermes. From whence we get the word hermaphrodite. Hermes, the son of Aphrodite, had both female and male sexual organs. And if you went into the temple of Aphrodite, you will find that there were little rooms on one side for women and little rooms on the other side for men. And if you were a male, you went into one of these rooms for men and there was a male prostitute waiting for you and you had a homosexual orgiastic experience and in so doing, you identified with Hermes for you took on the role of a woman as you performed the act. Vice versa for the woman going in to have sex with another woman. The temple worship of Aphrodite in Corinth was a sexual orgy of the most deplorable degenerate form. Now, was Paul condemning the loving relationship between two of your church members who come every Sunday and never say a word? Or was he condemning the sexual orgies that are related to the idolatry of Aphrodite? What was he talking about? You say, well, that's one way of looking at the first chapter of Romans. Exactly. It's one way of looking at it. And I could be wrong. And I'm willing to admit it. Are you willing to read that same chapter of Romans and say, you know, I, this is the way I believe. And I believe it with strong conviction under the leadership of what I feel is the Holy Spirit. But I could be wrong. Because if we don't start doing this, we're going to split the church right down the middle. And let me tell you this. you got a problem on your hands. I don't have statistics for Australia, and it's a different country. But this year was a, a Rubicon year. For gay people under the age of 30, for the first time, more of them support gay marriage than oppose it. You probably know that young people think very differently on this issue than older people for a very simple reason. I went to West Philadelphia High School, 4,500 students in our high school. I only knew one gay kid and he committed suicide. I didn't know any gay children, young people. Statistically, there had to be at least 450 of them in that school, at least. 
but they were all in the closet. I'll tell you what's changed. They're not in the closet anymore. They've come out and said, this is who I am. Can you love me as I am? I said to one gay kid, when we in the church sing just as I am, we really don't mean it. Oh, he says, you do mean it. When you sing just as I am, you mean it just as I am, not as you are. Whoa. I don't have the answer with absolute assurance. In the words of Scripture, I love Scripture. I'm working out my salvation. Here's the verse from Philippians. With fear and trembling, I could be wrong. And it's a lot is at stake in this issue. What I must do to those who hold a point, different point of view is to listen to them. I'm here with a friend. And I, I don't know whether I said it to him or somebody who was driving me today. But I get letters from people who criticize me. Who said, Doctor, I heard you speak and so many of the things you said I really like, but you said this. And they, they'll critique me. And they'll condemn me. And I've taught the young men and women who are studying with me to not get angry. I always respond to such a letter as, like that in this way. Dear Mr. Jones, <coughs> I'm so appreciative that you did what Matthew 18 told you to do. You've got something against a brother. You went to the brother, in this case by mail. You didn't talk behind my back. You confronted me. That's what the Bible says when you have a difference of opinion. Direct confrontation. Thank you for being biblical. Secondly, I want to tell you this. I learned so much from those who criticize me. Friedrich Nietzsche said, I learn more from my enemies than I do from my friends. My friends do not point out my shortcomings, my failures. My enemies do. And I learn from them. Say, so, you know, when I read your letter and listened to what you had to say, I want you to know, I take your criticism very, very seriously. And I'm not just going to toss this letter aside. I'm going to think about what you said for a long, long time. Because you may be somebody that God is using to speak to me. Thank you for writing. Sincerely, Tony Campolo. What I'm not going to do is argue with the guy and tell him how wrong he is and how right I am. That's what brings division. That's what keeps us from loving each other. I can't tell you how many times people have written back to me and say, I still disagree with you. But having received your letter, I want to apologize for the nasty way in which I attacked you. And I ask for your forgiveness. And you get letters like that. I'm not in agreement. But we don't have to agree. I think it was the Pope who said, agreement on essentials. Disagreement on non-essentials. And in all things, love. Good statement. Well, that's it. Thank you for coming. I hope you come back tomorrow because I got some stuff 
that I've never said publicly before. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to talk about love and what that means. And I'll say some things I guarantee you, you haven't heard before. And I hope that when you leave, you'll say, man, that was edifying. I pray to edify. That's why I came. I came to edify. And if I didn't edify you, I ask for your forgiveness. Thank you so much. So thank you so much for oh, being I with... I didn't say this. I talked about red-letter Christians. If you want to become a red-letter Christian, go to the website, redletterchristians.org. But more than that, I brought along a whole bag of our, red, of our wristbands. It says Red Letter Christians, and on the back it gives the website, redletterchristians.org. If you want one, I've got one for you if you want to become a Red Letter Christian and say, I want to take Jesus seriously. Or as Shane Claiborne, who works with me, says, I want to be in a church that looks like Jesus. That's a fair statement. Uh, so this is the word. You want one? Come up and get one. These cost me cost me 60 cents a piece, U.S. That's about a dollar Australian. So you come up and you give me a dollar. If you don't have a dollar, I'll give you one of these anyway. But uh, I have a whole bag of them if you want a, a wristband. I find them terrific because I love to witness. I love to talk to people about Jesus, especially on airplanes. And you'll sit there and you're reading and you're working and guy next to you finally looks over and says, what the? There's a red-letter Christian. Glad you asked. And I go into the witness. I mean, it does provoke the conversation, and you don't have to start it. So get, a, get one of these and sing the hymn. I love the old hymns. I thought it was lovely to have that worship with all that new stuff. Never heard that stuff before. I sang so beautifully, so lovely. It was wonderful. But I'm an old guy. And I like the old hymns. Earthly pleasures vainly call me. What? I would be like Jesus. God bless you. Thank you.